Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. Today we are kicking off a six-part series titled Asking for a Friend. Over the course of the six weeks, we are going to be wrestling with questions that you've provided me over the last several months. And so I've kind of taken a lot of these questions. There were about 20 questions or so that came in, and I kind of categorized them and made umbrella questions over a number of them. And so I'm going to try to touch on a number of your questions over these six weeks, and they're going to go like this. Is God real today? Next week, kind of, why Jesus? You know, out of all the other options in the world, if, if God is real, if we conclude that, then why Jesus? Why do, how does salvation work? Uh, what if someone has never heard of Jesus? What happens to them in the afterlife? Does my faith have to look like my parents' faith? And then there are eight questions, kind of random, random questions, but I'm going to try to create one single narrative that will hopefully tie them all together. So pray for me. <clears throat> What I found interesting about the collection of these questions was that about one-third of the 20 questions I received all had to do with one topic in particular, and that topic was sexuality. How do I talk with LGBTQ community, my neighbors, my friends, my children, whatever it may be? And so we're not going to address that in this series, but rather in the month of July, we're going to spend all of July talking about that important conversation in a series titled, Let's Talk About... You and me. It's a salt and pepper song. If you guys remember from the 90s, for those of you who are on, let's talk about you and me. Okay? So get excited. Pray for me, please. Should be a good time. Um, throughout both of these series, you're going to see this image a lot. It's a circle, concentric circles. You're going to see this a lot. Most Christians don't understand this. And they don't live by this. And this is going to be important. It is why there is so much division in the church, and this is the main reason I think that the world scoffs at Christianity and mocks Christianity is because Christians, churches, have gotten this concept confused. Here's the thing. There are hills that I, as a follower of Jesus, are willing to die on. And and really all of us, if we're ardent, true followers of Jesus, there are certain hills that we're going to die on. Like literally when when Paul, for instance, in the first century, and all the disciples for that matter, were, were dragged before the chopping block and place their head on there. Like these were issues they were literally going to die on. Christians throughout the centuries have been dragged to the stake. They were going to die on these claims. There are some things that I am willing to die on. Things like the Trinity, the dual nature of Jesus, sinfulness of humanity, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, justification by faith alone. These are non-negotiables. These are hills that we are going to die on figuratively and literally. But there are a ton of other doctrines that I will defend, but I am not willing to die on those hills. Topics that don't need to divide us, things like how God created the earth or or what God's sovereignty means or the end times or how to interpret the book of Revelation. All sorts of questions, all sorts of doctrines that are really fun to talk about and 
debate and I can defend my viewpoint through scripture and through theology, but I am not going to die on that hill. We can have varying perspective. And guess what, friends? We can still be friends. Church doesn't understand that very well, does it? There are different interpretations that we can still be friends about. And then there are discussions to be had. There's this, there's this outer rim that, hey, these are, these are fun discussions, but they may be fascinating, even insightful, but they don't really pertain to Orthodox Christian belief, Orthodox Christian thinking. And the reason that there is so much division within Christianity, and the reason why the world looks at Christians and just, again, mocks us and scoffs us, is because too many people have mixed up these categories. We, we've taken these ideas that there, there's these core, and there's just a few. That's why the, the core is, is small, right? There's just a few ideas that I am going to die on, beliefs I'm going to die on. And we have taken these outer rims and we've shoved them into the middle. You know people who have done this. Maybe you've done this from time to time. You've taken an outward idea and, 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 and a, a doctrinal defended belief and you've shoved it into the, the center. And you've made it an issue that you are going to die on and it has divided the Christian faith. And so as we talk about each of these conversations over the next you know, two and a half months, we're going to use this image a lot to help you understand where this conversation falls within the, the broader scope of conversing as Christians. Today we're going to wrestle with the important question, is God real? A very important question. And, and I hope it's obvious, but this is a die-for issue. <laughs> it's a die-for issue. It belongs in the center because, come on, friends, if, if nothing I have ever told you Nothing I've ever told you matters if God doesn't exist. Nothing that I have ever told you matters if God doesn't exist. And it's not just me. Anything that anybody has ever told you who's in a position like me matters. No no holy book matters. No religious text. No verse that you go to time and time again to find inspiration and solace for your soul. It doesn't matter if God doesn't exist in the first place. What we think about with the resurrection, evil and suffering, heaven and hell, world religions, the afterlife, hope and love, Jesus, the church, salvation, meaning and purpose, life itself, and none of it matters if God does not exist. I have wasted my life if God doesn't exist. And every single one of you who are following Jesus have also wasted your life if God does not exist. And so before, before we get too far in this very important um, topic for today, um, let, let me tell you that around 4 a.m. this morning, I awoke with this overwhelming feeling that everything that I had spent the week preparing for you wasn't what I was supposed to say to you today. It's kind of a, <clears throat> it's kind of a stressful situation when you, when you find yourself realizing that at 4 a.m. in the morning. But, but here's, here's why I'm telling you this. I'm still learning to walk by faith. And faith is about surrendering control and walking into the unknown and trusting that the God who is capable will meet you there. And so I had spent a portion of my week researching and preparing to enlighten you on belief and belief I, belief in God is warranted, belief that God exists is warranted. And that's not entirely the question that I felt like I needed to respond to today. The question, the question isn't, does God exist, right? Though that's, that's a very important question. We're going to wrestle with that. I'm going to give you some philosophical thought because I do want you to, to enhance your tool belt. If you're having conversations out in the world, I recognize that most of the people in this room already believe that God exists to some extent. And so I do want to enhance your tool belt. As you're out conversing with neighbors and coworkers and, and whatnot, I want you to have tools to have those conversations wisely. But the question is, is God real? 
And I may be splitting hairs here, but I think the person who asked this question is hoping for more than philosophical arguments on the existence of God. They want to know if God existing matters. Is there a personal God who loves me? Is there a God who cares about me? Is there a God who is for me who will come to my defense? So this morning I heard God ask me, well, Ross, why do you believe that I'm real? You think that would have started with that question, you know, like a week ago when I started preparing this, but like, why do you believe that I'm real? And that's a complicated question because you could approach that question from a lot of different angles. But my first thought was this, when I was about 12 years old, I distinctly remember being scared of death. Anybody else ever been scared of death? I remember distinctly looking past my life and all I could see was darkness for all of eternity. And I'm not talking about like a hundred years of darkness. I'm talking about for all of eternity, there is just darkness. There is blackness. There is nothing. It's a void. That scared me. Does that, has that better idea ever scared anybody else that there is nothing beyond this life? It scared me. I get that in death, we wouldn't be conscious to realize time. And so fear is kind of a moot point when you're dead. But that's not the point or the conclusion that I came to when I was thinking about this. If the grave is the end of this road, are we not to be pitied as human beings? If if the grave is the end, if that's all there is, are we not to be pitied? Because the, the question isn't, isn't there life after death? The question is, does anything matter on this side of death? And if we're all just carbon masses, like that guy suggested, we're just, you know, a bunch of carbon masses who got here by accident. If that's all we are, we're just the latest step in evolution, that we don't have any intrinsic worth, we don't have any intrinsic value, we don't matter. You have no greater purpose than your own survival. And even that is a wasted effort because in the end, the grave is going to be victorious over all of us. And so you have no greater purpose than your own survival. The conclusion that atheists and theists alike agree on is this. If God doesn't exist, you don't matter. This isn't a debated point. Atheists would completely agree with this. If God doesn't exist, you don't matter. You have no purpose. Your life doesn't mean anything. Everything you work for, all the progress that you strive after, the formation of your children that you are invested in, trying to become the best version of yourself, none of it matters. All of it is a waste of time. You are worthless and your existence is pointless. You are just wasting space and wasting resources. And so listen to what I'm saying. If God doesn't exist, you don't matter. How do you respond to that? How does that feel in your heart? If God doesn't exist, you don't matter. There are really only three responses to a statement like this. You can be indifferent. That's, that's one option that you have. The one who is indifferent, I think, can only be indifferent for so long, though, because they must agree that not only do they not matter, but nothing matters. And so when they see an injustice or immorality taking place, when they see their sister being abused or their friend cheated or they experience an atrocity against themselves, they have no right to care. But don't they? All the time they do. All the time we do. Because I do think we are moral creatures who believe that we have a purpose and we matter. The, the other two options you have are defense and depression. And, and here's the thing. If with that statement that you don't matter, your, your, your reaction is to defend it. No, I do matter. That's saying something really, really profound about your experience upon this planet. If, you're, if your response is to go into depression, that's also saying something about 
your understanding of how the world works and who God is. That we're not just a bunch of random mutations living out our time until we die. You're longing for satisfaction and beauty and desire and passion. Your recognition of injustice and pain and wrongs, they come from a God who has put that in you. You do matter because there is a God who loves you. There is a God who made you. There is a God who made you on purpose with a purpose. I believe that. I think you believe that too. Even if you don't fully understand it, you believe that because something in your heart rejects the idea that you don't matter. Thinking about death this morning sent my mind towards my mother. Today's Mother's Day. And as I mentioned earlier, it's the first Mother's Day that I have without my mom. She died last May 26th. And so I started to think about grieving, the nature of grieving. How many of you have ever grieved the loss of a loved one before? Yeah, it could be a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter, parent, friend, anybody, right? You've grieved the loss of a loved one. I hate sounding insensitive, but, but how many of you amidst the, the, the thought of that loss, amidst that, the, the throes of that loss, how many of you thought this? <clears throat> Good. One less mouth to feed. Did anybody think that amidst your throat and the throes of your grief? My mom died of Alzheimer's at the age of 69. And I can remember months before her passing, my prayers shifted from God's healing to God's mercy that he would take her quickly because she was entering into a state where it just it wasn't going to be reversible. And here's the thing, the, the, the two aren't mutually exclusive. Her, her passing and her healing were adjacent to one another. And I find a lot of comfort and solace in that. Mourning, though, doesn't make sense if nothing matters. So why do we mourn loss? Why, why do we mourn the state of the world? You guys ever thought about this? Almost, you know, three-fourths of this room raised their hand when we talked about having loss, significant loss. Mourning doesn't make sense if nothing matters in the world. You know something matters. You've mourned that. Look at the, <clears throat> look at the state of the world right now. A couple of headlines from this past week. The war in Sudan pushes 7 million civilians into starvation. Pfft, who cares? I'm not responsible for them. Who cares? 10,000 children die daily from malnutrition. So what? Armed gangs prompt violence, kidnappings, rape, and killings in rural Haitian towns. There have been more mass shootings in the United States this year than calendar days. Pennsbury High School goes into lockdown. Bomb threats close in the Chamonix High School. Who cares? We all care, don't we? You, you hear things like this. You, you hear the state of the world. You experience loss. You experience mourning. And we care. Don't tell me it doesn't matter. Because it does. It matters deeply. And we feel it deep within us. I read not too long ago about a girl who gave birth to a child in the bathroom <clears throat> during her high school prom. Nobody knew she was, she was even pregnant. She goes, into the, she goes into labor during dancing. She goes and she gives birth to this child in the bathroom. She looks at this little boy in the eyes. She realizes she doesn't want this child. She takes the umbilical cord, strangles the child to death, throws it in the trash can, and goes back to the dance to finish the night. Does that disturb anybody? Why? Why do we mourn that? 
The question is, why are you disturbed? Why do we mourn the state of humanity? Why do we care about what other people are doing or how they're feeling or what they're experiencing in life? Why do we care? Because if you are a consistent atheist, you have forfeited your right to be disturbed or concerned with what is right or wrong in the world. If we were just random mutations and carbon masses and our own personal survival is all that matters, then mourning and morality are counterproductive to nature. If there is no God, then all moral statements are arbitrary, all moral valuations are subjective, and there can be no external moral standard by which a person's feelings and values are judged. I know that's kind of a heavy statement. And some people are going to look at this and they'll say, fine, morality is subjective, that's fine. What is right and wrong is true for you and it's true for your culture, but what is right and wrong can be true for me and true for my culture and my experience upon this planet, and it can all be subjective. It's all just a product of our evolutionary development. But this line of thinking, I think, forces people into an impossible corner to defend. You know, say, say because there's a person who is, you know, a product of evolution and just interested in their own survival prompts him towards, you know, doing all sorts of crazy things. It does, it would all of ours, right? If we were just a product of our own evolution, we would do everything in our power to survive. And so, you know, we, we would, if we were starving, we would go into people's homes and we would eat their food. And if we needed to stay warm, then we would take their clothing. And if we needed their shelter, then we would evict them out of their house. We would do everything in our power to survive. And if right and wrong are just relativistic standards imposed on us by our evolutionary development, then we have no right to say that any of that is wrong. I know it's not my food. I know it's not my house. I know it's not my clothes. But you know what? I needed to survive, and so I'm going to take it from you. Don't tell me it's wrong because it's just a product of my evolution. It's just survival of the fittest, and we should then expect more people behaving like that. But press anybody into that corner, and I think that they would all disagree and the reason they would disagree is because all human beings have moral feelings and a morality derived from evolution makes so many of our moral constructs unexplainable and counterproductive it doesn't make sense why any of us would do the things that we do to help society thrive because according to natural selection there are races within the human species that are intrinsically more advanced and therefore should be favored charles darwin thought this he wrote a book called On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. In it, he suggested that all inferior humans should not be allowed to marry and reproduce so that the human race can become the best it can be. It seems appalling to us today, right? But in the 20s and 30s, it was actually a really very popular strain of thought. Eugenics, the belief of the possibility of improving the quality of our species, by discouraging certain people to not procreate. Anybody ever saw the movie Amsterdam? Not many of us? Okay, that's all that movie was about, right? <clears throat> Bertrand Russell suggested in 1929 that the state mandate sterilization of everyone who was mentally deficient. Because by reducing the number of idiots, imbeciles, and feeble-minded, society would benefit to a degree that outweighs any danger of sterilization's misuse. This way of thinking by the intellectually elite of their day was a primary, was a primary player, player in the Second World War. Adolf Hitler attempted to take Darwinianism to its natural conclusion. He wrote in his book, Mein Kampf. Never thought you'd read this in church, did you? 
If nature does not wish that weaker individuals should mate with the stronger, she wishes even less that a superior race should intermingle with an inferior one. Because in such cases, all her efforts throughout hundreds of years to establish an evolutionary higher stage of being may thus be rendered futile. And so it's not enough that, you know, inferior races shouldn't intermarry with superior races. We we shouldn't even tolerate inferior races, inferior people. This was was the justification for incinerating six million Jews. Why don't we put up with this thinking? Why do we shake our head at it? Why are we disgusted by it? Why does Auschwitz still haunt us today? Why did the world go to war? Why not just take naturalism to its intended end? See, there's something that something inside of us repels racism and sexism and unequal treatment to the poor and disabled and the fact that we fight for human rights and we give away what is ours for the betterment of good and for the good of other people. We cry at injustice. We mourn when we hurt. We mourn during loss. All of these things are indicators that we matter. They're not natural. They come from somewhere. Which leads us to a portion of Scripture. In John's letter, first letter, John was a follower of Jesus Christ. He, he said this, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. All he's saying is this, love doesn't make sense if God isn't real. Mourning doesn't make sense if, if nothing matters. Love doesn't make sense if God isn't real. I, I don't mean the emotive, feeling-based love of the world. I mean the willingness to give up what is mine for the benefit of you. And don't we do this all the time? naturally we do this all the time i made a post this morning uh, on facebook honoring moms because i was thinking man moms have the hardest job ever don't they and i said this i said you know from what i've observed being a mom is the hardest job in the world kids are literally ripped from your body episiotomy anybody they're literally ripped from your body i know I'm, i'm honest friends okay and then here's the thing their first motion towards you is to scream at you and then they literally suck the life from your body and then they do it for the next 18 plus years why do moms keep loving their children why do we keep giving ourselves and our resources and our energy and our emotions and our time and our money to see our children thrive atheists might say well because it's it's survival of the human race But again, why does that matter? If we're all destined for infinite darkness in the end, why does any of that matter? Who cares when it arrives, if that's the end that's going to come upon all of us? And if nothing we can do ultimately change the fact that the world is destined for death, then there is no reason anyone should be self-sacrificial towards another. If all there is is biological functioning and life cycles over and over again, if all we're all just biological mutations that got to where we are by accident and life cycles then the intrinsic joy of loving someone, the elation of lifting someone up from their burden, caring for someone in desperate need, the resources we pour into sustaining life and medicine, none of it makes sense. None of it makes sense because none of it matters. If you ever come across an honest atheist who says, yeah, none of it matters. None of it matters. We're all just destined for the grave. Nothing matters. We're all just carbon mutations, all headed towards infinite darkness. I want you to punch them in the face. <laughs> and and, and I, don't, I don't say that out of, don't do it out of anger. Don't do it out of spite. Do it because I want you to ask them, did that matter? 
Did you feel that pain? Are you hurt by that? Did you cry unjust, unjust when that experience happened? Did that matter? Are you offended? It's an open door towards a conversation. <clears throat> so as I'm laying there at four in the morning this morning, these are the thoughts that have been going through my head, right? And I'm thinking about punching atheists, and I start thinking, <laughs> cause and effect, cause and effect. My fist, his bruise, cause and effect, right? And so a, a, couple, a couple of tools for your conversational tool belt here. The existence of everything we know in this world is contingent on something outside of itself. These are philosophical in nature, but let me say that again. The, the existence of everything we know in this world is contingent on something outside of itself. So think about it. You are here right now, but you weren't always here, right? Your, your parents had to come together, and they went on a first date, and they eventually maybe got married and lit some candles, and you know how the story goes. Like, you know how it works, like cause and effect, right? Everything that begins to exist must have a cause, Everything that begins to exist must have a cause. Everyone agrees on this. There is no debate about this. So the question for thousands of years was this. What is the non-contingent, infinite, uncaused something that has always existed and has no beginning? And most people throughout history simply said the universe. The, sim- the universe has just simply always existed. And that was hard to refute until 1929 when Edwin Hubble looked through his 100-inch telescope and looked out into space further than anybody had ever done before, and he experienced that the universe was drifting away. It was moving. It was expanding. It was getting bigger. Eventually, it was discovered that the reason that galaxies were moving apart was because they were once flung apart by a massive explosion. Modern science has confirmed what Hubble predicted, that all galaxies, stars, planets, energy, and matter had a common point of origin approximately 15 billion Years ago, when all mass in the universe was condensed to one point. We know this as the Big Bang, right? And most people think that the Big Bang is a problem for theists. But in reality, friends, it's a problem for atheists. For centuries, atheists could claim that the universe was eternal. But now, science has proven that the universe has a birthday, a starting point. And if something begins to exist then it must have a cause outside of itself. Well, a lot of atheists would say that nothing caused the Big Bang. It just happened. But doesn't rational thought, along with Maria from The Sound of Music, suggest that nothing comes from nothing, and nothing ever will, nothing ever could? I mean, imagine that you're awoke in the middle of the night, and there's an alarm going off in your house, and you know your, your wife starts kicking you to get out and see what it is, so you grab the bat that's under your bed, and you... And you go downstairs to investigate why the alarm is going off. And you don't find anything. So you come upstairs and you crawl back into bed. And she says, well, what, 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 what was the problem? And you said, nothing. That's not an answer, though. It, it might have been that the alarm was tripped by a squirrel. It might have been that the window popped open. It might have been that there was some faulty wiring. But nothing doesn't make sense. The alarm was going off. Something had to have caused the alarm to go off. Nothing comes from nothing. So if something was caused, it came from something. So what is a rational, scientific, and theologically compelling equation to build our life on? All the clues lead to a mind. A mind that transcends space and time and matter who created all things in a single moment. Or as Genesis tells us, in the beginning, God created. And it's not just that he created, but I think God left his mark upon creation. 
I could share with you about how the chances of a habitable world are 1 times 10 to the 138th. We could talk about the Goldilocks zone or about how the earth is fine-tuned for life. We could talk about how a single strand of DNA has over 3 billion codes and characters in it and all of them have to be lined up perfectly for life to exist. The precision of the world and the mind is is totally mind-blowing, but I'd rather compel your own heart and your mind to think about this for a minute. Here's what Paul thought, anyway. Paul is one of the writers of the New Testament. He said, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. This past week, my son Luke and I were looking at um, models of teeth in an orthodontist office. And uh, I was just, I was, we were looking at this, this, this model of these teeth and it had all, it was baby teeth and it had all of the adult teeth still within like the gum line, you know, in the, in the skull. It's like, have you ever seen an x-ray of someone's mouth, like a kid's mouth? It is fascinating. <laughs> fascinating. We have all of our teeth. And I was just telling Luke, I was like, I cannot believe why people would not think this was designed. Like there was something in me that was like, how can you not believe in a creator after looking at teeth? Because like, you know, a little baby doesn't have teeth and then their mouth grows and little teeth start popping up. And like, can you imagine if you were given your adult teeth as an infant? How weird would that be, right? Or can you imagine if like, if your face continued to grow, but you were stuck with your baby teeth the rest of your life? How, how, how is it that could evolution have, I don't know, maybe it could have, but like, there was just, there was an awe in me, right? Creation of the world, invisible qualities, like you look at the world and you just stand in awe. You guys ever experienced that before? I, I think of a baby developing in a womb, knitting it together and, and growing right to that precise rate where it's then ejected from the womb. <laughs> bur- bur- birth from the womb. <gasps> Wish it was ejected sometimes, probably. I mean, how, how the fact that we like we don't have fifteen fingers and we all of us have five. I mean, I, you, like the complexity of the human person of a single cell is like it's mind blowing. And we're supposed to stand in awe of those things. We're supposed to look at the sunset over the ocean. And we're supposed to stand in awe. We're supposed to look at teeth and we're supposed to stand in awe. We're supposed to look at the eyeball and stand in awe. And we're supposed to. And so I, I, don't, I don't need to tell you. There's, there's a part of us, Paul would say, that already knows. None of us are without excuse. There's an innate sense of something bigger than myself. There's a, there's a transcendence that kind of overshadows all of us. And I want you to remember those times and think about those times because you remember them too. And you have them too. Here's the thing. Nothing I've said requires a personal God today. We could have just been created and God could have just, you know, stayed off in the distance. A lot of religions believe that. I don't believe that. And so next week we are going to continue the conversation because, you know, I, I, I hope that you, you understand a few things about this morning, that you matter, that you matter. And, and your, your belief that you matter, because I think we all believe that to some extent, and if you don't, I'm going to come punch you in the face and see if that hurt, okay? And we're going to figure this out together. <laughs> that something matters. 
something matters about your existence on this planet, like something matters, that's important. You need to wrestle with why. What is that telling us about the, the existence of something bigger than ourselves? You matter. You matter. Every single one of you matters. And that phone call matters probably too, but later, okay? <laughs> you matter. They're like, it's 11 o'clock, church has got to be over, it's safe to call. And you're like, no, you're at restoration, friends. <laughs> Ross is long-winded, it goes that way. You matter, you matter, you matter. And you already know. There's a sense of the divine in all of us, the transcendent being. And so here's the thing, again, a personal God, we really haven't gotten to that point yet. We're going to cover that next week. Why Jesus? Why, why not Muhammad? Why not Buddha? Why not Hindu? Why not all the other religions? What, why, why should I devote my life to following Jesus? Out of all the other options, and, and then is this God personal, right? He could just be, a, again, just a higher power, a, a spiritual being. Most everybody in that video, that was Chicago, by the way, most everybody in that video was like, eh, I don't know, there's some higher being out there. Most people believe that, that's true. The percentage, of, there's like 3% of the world is atheist, right? Most people believe that there is something in the world. Why Jesus? I really, really invite you to join us again next week as we wrestle with that really, really important question because, again, like, there might be a higher power, but, like, we're still screwed if that's the case. <laughs> we need saving from something, and so we're going to talk about that next week. Let me say a prayer for us as we conclude our time together. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for who you are. Thank you that you have made yourself known. Thank you that as we look at teeth and faces and eyeballs and sunsets and mountains, landscapes, and we look at people being kind to each other and the love that they extend, and we, we mourn and we grieve. These are all indicators that there is something, something that matters. And that we're not just a bunch of random mutations that got to where we are and we're just awaiting our time until we die, but there's something bigger than us that we are called into. I pray, Father, that you would continue to reveal to us and, and, and take us along on this journey deeper into your love, ultimately, Father. Deeper into your life. Thank you for making yourself known so that we do not have to remain lost forever in the darkness. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us today, friends. We'll see you next time.